Good, happy almost the end of uh, August, right? Uh, great to see you. As he mentioned, we are continuing our How the Good Go Bad series. Great to be with you today. Uh, but just let me give you a heads up, a preview, if you will, of what's coming in a couple of weeks. Uh, we are going to spend a few weeks starting uh, the week right after Labor Day with uh, dealing with some of the angst and the frustration and the dread that you and me and apparently the entire nation is feeling about the political process and the upcoming presidential election. If the polls are correct, most people are not actually planning to vote for someone for president as much as voting against someone else from becoming president. That's not really a ringing endorsement, is it, for either candidate or the process. And uh, that sense of hopelessness has actually led one person to make this cap, I think I've got it up here, make America great, Britain again. <laughs> now listen, the great fear is this, that, that you get to do one thing, right? You get to cast a vote and the verse, person that you're voting for probably to prevent the other person from actually winning, what, what if they win anyway? What, what then? So we're gonna do, entitle this series coming up called National Recovery, and I'm not uh, gonna tell you how to vote, that's not my job. I do wanna inspire us to be the kind of people that could possibly contribute to making America great again, or being stronger together, depending upon whichever campaign slogan wins the day. So we're gonna have some fun. Might be a great time to invite your friends or relatives or neighbors uh, who are also beside themselves as to what to do with this whole election thing and worrying about the future of America. So that's where we're headed in two weeks. So uh, you wanna be here for that. In the meantime, let me just pray for us for today and see what God might have on the agenda for today. God, thanks for this morning. Thanks for these folks that have come out. Thanks for this uh, theater we have. Thanks for the air conditioning and for Alina to show up and, and, uh, and uh, take care of us in that way. We pray that you would uh, uh, descend on us this morning and give us insight we wouldn't uh, have if we didn't have these stories that you had recorded for us in scripture that we might learn something from. I uh, pray that we might be changed from our time here with you. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, two up. Uh, <clears throat> To set the stage for, for today's message, I just want you to think you can imagine with me a little bit, get your imagination caps on, kind of play with me a little bit on this imagination. Can you do that? Yes, okay, thanks. At least the little ones of you can do it, okay? Imagine with me a very different America than that which emerged after the Revolutionary War. Imagine that we didn't actually win that war so much as we simply outlasted our opponents. They sort of ran out of will, or they ran out of the money, or they ran out of whatever, just decided to stop fighting. So what we really had was kind of much more of a, of a rather than a victory, just kind of a, a, a ceasefire. And the folks that were fighting, they didn't go home, they just kind of stayed, hung out, whatever, made the best of what they could while they were here. They just kind of settled in among the colonists, whatever. And they had some bases and stuff around the edges of the colonies. And these 13 colonies being filled with uh, total individualists, they really didn't become the United States. They all, they all wanted independence from, from any entity over them that would tell them what to do. So there were just these kind of like 13 areas uh, where clans and families and relatives all kind of hung out together, pretty much doing whatever they pleased. No, no central government, uh, really not even state governments. Uh, and the colonies didn't actually expand across the continent. They just kind of stayed where they were and hung out. Okay, you with me on that? You're still imagining that? 
Now, now in this context, here's what the history has been for these little colonies for the last 260 years since 1776. Every so often, the Brits or the French or the Spanish or the Portuguese kings who would maintain some territory and and, and people outside of the 13 colonies, they would kind of get together and they would mount an armed force, an incursion that would kind of swoop in to these 13 colonies and and overwhelm chunks of it and kind of take charge. And the colonies with no central government was kind of live under this oppression for 30 or 40 years until they finally, you know, got tired of these guys taking their livestock and their women and, and making them do stuff in servitude. And finally, they would kind of get together a little guerrilla force, and they'd mount an effort to push back the guys who had invaded, and they'd take charge again. And then everything went well for, you know, 20, 30 years until another invading force would come in and do the same thing. And, and so this was, this was a cycle repeated for the entire 260 years since the Revolutionary War. Pretty dismal, no? Doesn't that sound pretty dismal? <laughs> Doesn't it sound dismal? Yeah. No, okay. <clears throat> so, so what to do, what to do, what to do? Maybe you get tired of this and you consider maybe we need to kind of organize in a different way. Maybe we need to have some kind of a form of government to kind of get rid of this silly nonsense of constantly being invaded. Uh, but, you know, you value your individualism a lot. You don't really want to give that up. But you realize it's kind of hard to be individualists when you're constantly being occupied and someone else is coming in and uh, telling you what to do. So you figure maybe you ought to link up with the other colonies. It's not just being our own little family. Maybe we ought to link up with the other colonies and we think, okay, well, look, we look around and we see that our opponents, well, they seem to get their act together and they come in here ever so often and whoop on us, whoop up on us. And they seem to have this thing we don't have. They have kings. And these kings seem to be people who can make things happen. Maybe we need ourselves a king who can help keep those other dudes away. And you kind of get agreement among all the 13 clans in these 13 colonies, and you go for it. Now, with only a couple of variations, what we have just described was the entire 400-year history of Israel, what was a seemingly endless cycle after the, of the history of Israel after the death of Joshua who led the nation of Israel into the promised land. Well, the variations, well, the, the variation was that Israel was supposed to follow God and when they fell away, God would allow invaders to come. The people would then go, my gosh, life is miserable. What, 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 what happened? Oh, we fell away from God. Maybe God brought this judgment upon us. Let's turn back to God. So they'd repent. They'd, they'd ask God to forgive them. They'd, they'd come back to God, and, and then they'd ask God to save them, and God would raise up this sort of uh, leader who would then rally the forces, mount an effort, and push these uh, invaders back out. And this cycle, they would repeat, because once the leader got old and died, the people would fall away again. And the cycle would just simply repeat ad nauseum for 400 years. Years. Now, after a while, maybe 350 years or 380 years of this nonsense, people came to the conclusion, you know, maybe, just maybe, we could, we could get ourselves a king. And we could stop this nonsense from happening because we'd have somebody to kind of rally the forces and push these guys back before they actually got started. So they pressure the most recent leader that God had raised up, who's getting pretty old by the name of Samuel, 
hey, we want a king. So Samuel and God begin this long conversation about this king thing. And God says, it's going to be really bad for them. Go back and tell them that. So we don't care. We want a king. God says, it's going to be horrible. Here's what's going to happen. We don't care. We want a king. And so finally God says, okay, okay, you want it. You got it. Samuel comes back and says, okay, God's going to give us a king. God's going to pick a king for us. So there's this nationwide gathering where they all come together. They parade by Samuel, but by tribes. And uh, there's going to be this coronation of this big king. And uh, all of a sudden, the line stops because Samuel said, stop. And the people in front of him are from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, in terms of the 13 colonies, you need to think Rhode Island here. Dinky. Dinky little tribe, insignificant, pretty much nothing, right? Uh, and uh, the rest of the tribes are kind of bummed because they weren't going to be the guys that get to cho- had the, cho- the king chosen from their territory. But they're also kind of happy because at least when it's done, we're going to have a king, and that's going to be good. We don't have to follow God anymore. We can do what we want to, and this king will take care of all the other nonsense. Okay, so from the least of the tribes, the least of the families, and those kind of wiggle way down. It's the most insignificant family inside of the most insignificant tribe is the one that's chosen. That's where the king's going to come from. See, the nation's come to a point where it's okay to have a faith in God as long as you don't really need to have have it expressed anyway. But they've got Ammonites on one side, on the east, and they've got the Philistines on the other side, on the west, and they're mounting forces and they're threatening Israel again. And uh, despite their history of 400 years with God rising up and smashing their opponents, they just want a warrior. Someone they can see and touch and taste and feel and know that he's the guy in charge. And so when Samuel calls out the name Saul, there's huge applause. But before we beat up the Israelites for kind of forsaking God a little bit, isn't, isn't this a little bit like us sometimes? I mean, we want to have faith in something we can see and touch and feel, not some God who sits in a cloud in a throne somewhere. When, when it's a crisis really upon us, we, we want something we can grab onto. Our faith is going to be in the finances that we have, the money we saved up. It's going to be in the talents and skills that we've honed over the years. Maybe it's going to be in a partner or a relationship. I, I don't know what it is for you or me, but doesn't our faith naturally tend to go to something that's more tangible than, than God sometimes? And, and boy, is Saul tangible? He stands a full foot taller than everybody else in Israel. He's the kid that made varsity as a freshman, no question. Of course, people are going, of course. Why did we see this coming? Saul, yeah, yeah, man, we should, have bet, we should have bet on him in the lottery. He's a clear choice. How do we not know that? And Saul started out so well. For example, Saul had been approached by Samuel before this coronation and told that he was God's choice. You know what Saul said? You're kidding. Why why me? Out of all the people in Israel, out of all the tribes in Israel, out of all the families in the tribes and the clans, and all the goofy families, why me? There's no way I should be chosen for this. And, And maybe... Maybe it was that humility that got him started off to right foot. I mean, maybe as long as we're, why, God, would you ever choose me? Maybe we're in a place God can use us. Humble, a very humble guy at the beginning. Samuel calls out Saul's name in front of this whole national, national gathering, and he's nowhere to be found. <laughs> they can't locate the guy. God has to come to Samuel and say, 
why don't you check the luggage? Because everybody had come, right, in their carts and their supplies and their donkeys and, and all that, and, and all their luggage for this big trip to get uh, this king coronated. And Saul was hiding out back in the luggage. So they had to drag him out to be coronated. He doesn't think he can do this job. And God kind of says, you know, that's exactly the kind of person I'm looking for. And for the next couple of chapters, we have some incredible successes, some incredible battles. Saul's really not sure what to do. He's not trying to lead. He's just trying to rely on God. And we're told actually that the Spirit of God kind of comes and just implants itself on him. And the guy proves to be this incredible warrior, quite a leader. They defeat the Ammonites to their east, crush them. Saul unites the kingdoms. All 12 tribes are finally a nation. There's a glimmer of hope that the cycle won't keep repeating. We finally got a king. We finally got a nation. We finally be able to actually take over the land that God has given us. We'll secure our borders. We'll be able to have some prosperity. We'll get some respect among the other nations. It's all going to be good. But then, but then we come to 1 Samuel chapter 15. Because this, after all, is a message series on how the good go bad. Now, I've got to tell you, the first few verses of this chapter are a little bit troubling. Um, but they're there in Scripture, so we have to deal with them. Um, I wish they weren't here in Scripture, so I wouldn't have to explain them, but there they are. And how, so how do we explain them? Well, here we go. Samuel comes to Saul. Remind Saul how he got to be king. The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. So therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Samuel's been the prophet of God, the leader, very mouthpiece of God. That's how he starts this conversation with Saul. Let me just remind you how you got to where you are. I'm the person God told to pick you to be king. I'm the one that God gives his word to. I give it to you. I know you're the king. I know you've had some success so far. It's been all great. But remember, God's in charge. You are kind of the person that's following God's instructions and everything's going to go good. So what I'm about to tell you from God is not advice. It's not something to take into account. It's not something to kind of consider. It's an order from the top. So listen up. Here's what God tells him. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now we're talking about 450 years earlier. <laughs> now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, man, a man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Hmm. You know, trouble anybody? This from a loving God? It would seem to be like the worst instructions you could ever get. So what is this? God says, okay, you guys have a king now, and I want you to go up against the Amalekites, and everything with a heartbeat I want you to kill. Not just the warriors, but their wives. Not just the wives, but their kids. Not just the older kids, but the, even the babies. Not just the people, but all the animals. Cattle, donkey, all the transportation, pets, cats, dogs. If they got goldfish in bowls, turn them over, kill the fish. This is the word of the Lord. Now get to it. Now, we could struggle with this and go, well, okay. Maybe this is a big misprint. Um, maybe this is the only time this kind of thing comes up. Maybe this is the only time God lays out this instruction. That would be really great, but that's not really the case. You might remember when Joshua led the people over the Jordan River, they came to the city of Jericho. What was the instruction? Utterly destroy, kill everything in the city and take no rewards. They take no plunder. 
The only family in that whole city that survived was Rahab because she and her family decided to worship God. They were spared. So historically, we need to kind of grasp this. If you go back to Daniel 21, 22, 21, it says this. God's the one that changes times and seasons. He is the one, whether we like it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not, raises up kingdoms and disposes of them. Nations, empires can reach a point of no return where the wickedness reaches such a level that God simply acts to eradicate them from the scene. History is strewn with the carcasses of once thriving cultures and nations. Look around. I mean, when's the last time you had lunch with a Hittite? A Babylonian? An Assyrian? A member of the Roman guard in the Roman Empire? They're all gone. God disposed of them and raised up others. And in the setting, here's a little line that might help us grasp what's going on here. Time does not erase sin. And God says it is time after 450 years or so for the Amalekites to pay. Now, the backstory, if you're interested in the backstory, you can write this down. Deuteronomy chapter 25, Exodus chapter 17, there you can find the story. But when God rescued the people, a bunch of slaves out of Israel, this was on a fighting force. They were wandering around the desert. The Amalekites were the very first nation that came out of nowhere and attacked them. They were kind of uh, desert pirates. You got a line of a million, a million and a half people snaking through the desert. And you'd find that what would happen is the back of the line would gravitate the slow, the feeble, the sick, the weak, the physically challenged, the pregnant, the nursing mothers, those that needed special care. And the Amalekites would swarm out of the hills and totally destroy the back of the line. They'd kill everything. And then they'd plunder, they'd run off. By the time the front of the line knew what was going on, the Amalekites had already retreated back into the wilderness. And this happened time and time again as Israel marched through the territory. And God basically said this, you guys are going to get yours in due time. And now the time has come. Now God made it very clear in these instructions to Saul. This is simply a judgment of God upon this evil and wicked nation. It's not a get-rich-quick scheme for Israel. There are plenty of those. You can see them even today. Guidelines for how to become financially wealthy by using your cat for internet pleasure, right? Internet celebrity. Now, the instructions to God were very, very clear. You guys don't take nothing. No silver, no gold, no cattle, no horses, no donkeys, no nothing. Don't leave anything alive. No celebrating, no cheering. This is grim stuff to have to punish a people who'd reached that point of no return. So... Saul organizes 210,000 troops, and he heads out. When he gets there, he realizes, it's kind of a funny little uh, side note in Scripture, he sees some friendly faces down in the crowd of the Amalekites, and we read this in verse 6. There's a group called the Kenites, and Saul sees them down there, and he says, well, go tell those guys to get out of town because I'm about to destroy the Amalekites, and I don't want them to be caught in the crossfire because they were nice to us when we came out of Egypt. The Kenites were kind of like, I don't know, kind of like traveling gypsy types. I mean, they would come into a place, come into a nation and say, hey, anything we can do for you guys? Anything you need sharpened? Anything you need, uh, you know, uh, created? You want us to make something for you? And they would kind of work uh, and then they'd go to another location, do the same thing there. Well, they happened to be in the Amalekite camp. Once they leave, though, 
Saul attacks, and he completely overwhelms the Amalekites. It says he took Agag, sad name, Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and he devoted to destruction every other person with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the best of the oxen and the best of the fatted calves and the best of the lambs. All that was good, they took. They did not destroy them. All the worthless stuff <laughs> didn't have any value. Oh man, they, they tore that stuff up. You see any disconnect between the instructions and the execution of the instructions? And doesn't this just a little too much remind us of us while we want to beat up on Saul? God, I'm going to follow you. I'm giving my entire life to you. I'll do whatever you say, except for those little areas I think maybe my way makes more sense. Except in those areas where it seems really better than to do it this way, the way I want to do it, rather than what you said. But, 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 but in everything else, I mean, I'm, I'm there. I'm with you. I'll follow you completely. Yeah, I got a little corral where I got some sheep, the best of this stuff over here. I mean, I'll put this guy over there. He's a king. I'm a king. We get kings take care of each other. I mean, it's okay. I'll, I'll just keep the best for me. But in everything else, man, I'm, I'm doing it your way. And it's how the good go bad. See, we didn't actually read it, but the decline for Saul actually began a couple chapters earlier. He made a mistake. He was supposed to wait until Samuel arrives to offer a sacrifice before some battle. Samuel is a little bit late. People are getting restless. Some of them say, well, you know, nothing's going to happen. We'll just go back home. And Saul decides, you know what? I don't have to wait on Samuel. I'll just do it myself. And he takes it on himself to do this sacrifice rather than waiting on God's chosen priest. Already kind of thinking, well, now that I'm king, I mean, I really don't need to wait on God to do everything. I mean, there are some things I can make myself out to be okay on. I can decide what it's going to be. I mean, it's great to have God helping me in battle, but you know, not everything you know, I have to kind of rely on what God says. See, Saul forgot that Israel was never supposed to really have a king, that God was still basically in charge, and the king was kind of like the vice king, just following God's rules. He's always reached the point where he's thinking, well, you know, I'm a pretty good dude. I've, I've done some really great stuff. I'm pretty. Great, I've got some strength here. I I can rely on myself and my judgment on this one. This seems right to me, even though it might be just a little shady, a little off from what God said. I'll just keep my own little stuff over here in the tent, the corral. Uh, Nobody's going to mind. It's okay. But the consequences come swiftly. God comes to Samuel. He says, I regret that I made Saul king, for he's turned back from following me. He's not following me anymore. He's not performed my commandments. Samuel gets angry. He cries to the Lord all night. And he's basically, this is not God saying, look, I want you to know how big a mistake I made. (laughs) God's not saying that. He's trying to relate to a human being how the creator of the universe feels when his creation goes off the reservation. God's not being surprised by Saul doing this. He's not second-guessing himself. He's trying to use human terms to let us know that he is grieving over what his creation has done. God's not made the wrong choice. He knew exactly what was going to happen. He actually predicted it to Samuel before this all happened. The people knew exactly how kings were going to be. Of course, he saw this coming. But he's just saying, look, I just want you to know, it grieves me when people make these kind of choices. It causes me pain. I don't know if it's dawned on you that you can actually affect the emotions of the creator of the universe. You can grieve him. 
We know that when we are obedient, there's joy in heaven. We don't think about it sometimes that we can actually affect how God's feeling. So Samuel gets up, verse 12 it says. He rises early in the morning to go deal with Saul. And apparently en route, he hears another part of the story. That there was uh, a sort of a monument of some kind, a statue, pile of rocks, I don't know what it was, but it was a, some kind of a monument that Saul erected to himself. Didn't build a, a monument to God, he built a monument to himself. So, interesting, only five chapters away from a guy who was like, why me? I'm a nobody. I'm the least of the least of the least. Why would I ever be chosen? But in five chapters, he's going, you know what? I'm pretty dang special. I think I need me a monument to myself right here to sort of let everybody know and remind myself just how awesome I am. How rotten, but isn't this us too much? Watch an athlete who has success. Watch a musician or singer that becomes an icon. A businessman whose firm rises to be a Fortune 500 company. Watch you and me with just some chapters of success and proven talent. Not long before we kind of sit around and go, you know what? There should be a couple statues to me around here somewhere, don't you think? Because I'm pretty good. God's really good to have me on his team. By the way, if you think pastors are immune from this, you've not been watching preachers much. Happens to everybody. Look at the life you're leading. Look, Look at the house I have. Look at the kids I have. Look at the wife I've got. Look at the awesome success I've had. You fill in the blank. What are your gifts? What are your talents? What do you take pride in? That's when we start erecting monuments to us. And Saul has done so fantastic, he's thinking, this day's got to be remembered. Build me a monument to mark how awesome I am. So, see, it's one thing for the city of Philadelphia to build a statue of Rocky. It'd be something different, though, if Rocky built a statue of himself. That's why I had this opening scene uh, at the very beginning of the service where you see the statue of Saddam Hussein that he built to himself being ripped down by the people. Right? The Bible says it's far better to have other people tell us how wonderful we are than have us tell ourselves how wonderful we are, but that's where Saul is. And this is interesting. So Samuel then comes to Saul, and Saul, not run away, he comes up to him and says, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Now, now, I don't know about you, but maybe you didn't think God has a sense of humor. If you think that, that's because you've not read the account we're about to read. It is, well, sad, but also hilarious. Uh, Saul is caught up with by Samuel, and he says, oh, may God bless the socks off you, buddy. Samuel, you're just awesome. Look, I've done everything God asked me to do. And it gets more hilarious. Samuel says this, really? Well, I mean, if... if If that's the case, I do not understand then why I hear bleeding of sheep and lowing of the oxen. If you wiped everything out, why am I stepping on cow pies? Whose sheep are those right over there? And who's that guy over there with the crown on his head? What's the deal with that? Yeah, I've got a couple things in the corral. But other than those things, I did everything that God asked me to do. Now, here's, here's what's funny. I believe, that, I believe that Saul believes at this moment that he is 100%, 100, I, think he's, I think he believes he's 100% totally obedient. If he thought otherwise, don't you think he'd have run away from Samuel? Instead, he runs towards him. He'd have run the other direction. And I love Saul's reply. 
well, you know, this stuff that's over here, I mean, it really couldn't be, I mean, it couldn't be helped. It, it was the people. I mean, the people. Out of, out of my hands, really honest. I couldn't do anything. They're the ones that, that took the stuff from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and the oxen and all that kind of stuff. Oh, the intent was we're going to sacrifice that to your God. But everything else, everything else we, we destroyed. You know people. You know how people roll. Who can possibly control all the people? Hey, this is just the way the company wants to be run. I can't stand up against that. Man, if I did that, I'd be the only guy in the boardroom. Surely you get that, right? Samuel? So, so don't focus on that stuff. Focus on that total destruction of everything I killed over there and destroyed in the Amalek, Amalek area. Let's focus on the stuff I did right. Song of Solomon has a great little verse. It says, catch the foxes for us. The little foxes that spoil the vineyard. You know, you know, I find this as Christians. Most of us are not spending our time robbing banks and visiting prostitutes. Is that fair, fair to say? Nobody's done that in the last 24 hours? Say yes. Nobody's done. We hardly ever do something 100% wrong. No, kind of like Saul, though, we, we tend to be disobedient but hide that behind the stuff that we're doing right. Figuring the stuff we're doing right makes up for the stuff we're not doing right. So we don't, we don't blow it in huge, amazing ways, just small little areas that are kind of seemingly insignificant compared to all the great stuff we're doing right. We give some. Just not sacrificially. We, we serve some. You know, when, it, when, when it's convenient. We, we don't disobey God in not showing up for church every Sunday, except when there's you know, something else we have that we want to do. See, the problem what we see with Saul is it's often the little stuff. It's the little stuff that shows where our heart really is. And it's the stuff that ends up destroying a life, destroying a walk with God, destroying a relationship. And you know what? In 3,000 years, excuses haven't changed much. Yeah, we did this, but we were going to sacrifice it to your God. I don't know if it's a slip of the tongue or what, but Saul sort of at that point kind of unveiled his heart. He never, he didn't see God as his God anymore. He departed. God was right. He's not serving me anymore. And Samuel, by this point in time, has had just about enough of watching this guy dig his own grave. And he says this in verse 7, 16. Just stop. Just shut up. Don't, 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 say anything. don't say anything else. Let me tell you what the Lord told me. Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the, all the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king. Saul, remember? Remember when you were small in your own eyes? Remember that? Remember when you had some humility? Remember when you were first starting out and you were praying, God, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I have no idea how to be king. Remember when you were first starting out? And God was like, God, what should I study? What should I major in? What job should I take? Who should I date? Who should I get married to? Where should I live? Where should I go to church? Remember when you were clueless about yourself? Clueless about your life? Remember that point when you were dependent on him? Saul, I just want to remind you, because that's, that's something you left behind somewhere along the path in these five chapters. You've been successful, right? You've been successful. You've been called what we call blessed, and that's why God gave you this incredible assignment 
to go on this mission to destroy the Amalekites. Why? Why? Why did you disobey? Why did you pounce on the spoil for yourself? Why did you do what was evil? And I'm thinking, evil? He killed every single person of the, in the Amalekites except one person, the king. I mean, that's about 98%. I mean, if you're taking a test, that's pretty good, right? I mean, is 98 still passing in school? Was when I grew up. I'm not sure I would have called it evil. Maybe I would have gone to Saul and said, okay, Saul, you did some really great stuff here. But, you know, I, I think what you've unveiled here is a little, a little blemish on your record here, a little blemish of your character. You don't have to take care of it right now, but, you know, maybe sometime down the road, you ought to kind of focus in on that, kind of what caused you to do that and kind of see if you can correct that. But evil, really? Seems a little harsh. And I think Saul thinks so too, because about this point, he interrupts Samuel and says this, dude, <laughs> he didn't say dude, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, Amalek and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. <laughs> Don't you love that? I have completely obeyed every single thing the Lord asked me to do. I killed everybody. Just ask that guy over there with a crown on his head. Saul does not own responsibility. It was the people, he says in verse 21. It was the people that took the spoil, the people that took the oxen, the people that took the sheep. It's the people that took all the best things. I mean, they said they wanted to sacrifice with God, but you know, who, who believes that? Passing the blame on everybody else. Samuel, understand what's going on here. It's the people. The only reason the outcome was a little different than what God had originally said was because the people, not really my fault. I mean, I'm only the king. Samuel says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? You can read it on the screen. Say, say, Saul, do you really think God wants sacrifices and worship services more than obedience? Do you think that's what gets an applause from God? Don't you realize that disobedience is really just rebellion? You might as well be worshiping demons. You might as well be in full-fledged rebellion. See, your, your corral over there, the tents full of stuff, the king over there shows where your heart is, not on the stuff over here. It's not with God. So God has rejected you as king. This is hard because Saul knows what it's like to be used by God. He had some incredible victories in those chapters. And he's going to never, never taste that again. Saul, remember those moments you had with God when, when you had those feelings where you didn't have a clue what to do and God stepped in and, and descended on you and gave you power to do the stuff he wanted you to do? I gotta tell you, those days are gone, man. Gone, gone, gone. You're on your own. I mean, that's what you wanted anyway, to be on your own. So for the rest of Saul's reign, about 25 years, what he hears from God are the sounds of silence. Now he tries to get out of this. He, and he starts off halfway decently. He says this, I have sinned, verse 24, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. Hey, pretty good start, no? But then he goes on, because I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. Now therefore, pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And then in verse 30, here's, what he, here's where his heart really is. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me. Honor me. You, honor me before the people, the elders. 
Return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. See, Saul's not really worried about his sin. He's not concerned really with how he looks to God. He's concerned with how he looks to the people. He's not serving God anymore. He's serving the people. Come back with me, Samuel. Go to church with me. Stand up at church with me. That way I'll still look good. I'll still look large and in charge in front of the people. Maybe they won't notice the depth of my problem. And I'll be okay because it's their opinion that matters to me, not God's. And Saul finally, Samuel finally relents and says, okay, I'll go back with you. But you just got to realize what we're doing is just spectacle. It has no meaning. Your kingdom will be stripped from you and given to another. And Saul begins his descent into depression and darkness and rage and envy and madness. Let me just end with a couple of takeaways. Number one, partial obedience is really just, is really just disobedience. <laughs> partial obedience is really just disobedience. This is the part of the story where Saul gets a 98% of the test. How many of us would love to say we've done 98% of everything right in our Christian lives, yet God says it's just evil? So God says, partial obedience is just really disobedience. And if that's true, why, why are we even here? Because really, is it true we have to all be 100%? It's all or nothing, otherwise we're doing evil? If that's the guideline, how many of us even have a passing grade of 100%? No, no way, I don't even come close. That's why there's number two, second point, because they go hand in hand. God is a lot more concerned with our direction than our perfection. Christian life is not about being perfect, at least here on earth. So I don't want anybody leaving here today thinking, well, I guess I gotta be perfect or else I'm just totally evil and God cannot use me in any way, shape, or form. But God is concerned about our direction and our hearts. Let me, let me just illustrate this really quickly by the guy that God chooses next to be king. You may have heard of him, a guy named David. Okay? A guy who has an affair with his neighbor, gets her pregnant, kills her husband to cover it up. And that was an all. You look through David's life, he has about four huge huge blunders where he screws up majorly and it has huge consequences not only for him and his family but for the nation but listen every single time David was called on the carpet he did something Saul never did David dropped to his knees and said God I've sinned against you and you only forgive me God create in me a new heart Show me what it's like to follow you with my whole heart and soul and mind and strength. Help me to do that. How, how different from Saul's prayer, which is help me look good in front of the people. This isn't a story where God says, if you're a child of mine, you gotta be absolutely perfect. That's not what God's saying. It's a story where God says, look, if you are a child of mine, you are gonna wanna be perfect, knowing that you really can't get there on your own, knowing that Jesus already paid the price for your mess-ups. So with this new heart that God gives you and me, we're going to strive out of our love for him to be as obedient as we can. And when we fail, and we will fail, when that happens, when that's brought to our attention, here's what the children of God say. God, this is not something I'm willing to accept. I'm going to agree with you about what it is. It's sin. Not willing, I'm not willing to condone it. I'm not willing to accept it. I'm not willing to excuse it. I'm not willing to hold on to it. I want to change my mind about it. I want to repent. I want to turn and head in a new direction you're going to set for me. Teach me how to battle this, this temptation I have and move on. 
It was interesting. When David sinned and, and fell, the whole nation knew it. He didn't give a rip about whether everybody in the world knew that he was a sinner and was under condemnation. He, he, uh, he, he was basically mostly concerned about getting that relationship with God right, not about what the people thought. And what they saw was a leader that bowed his knee before God. But people who aren't children of God do this. God, I know what you say in your word about sexuality. I know what you say about sex before marriage. I know what you say about raising kids. I know what you say about how we're supposed to handle our finances. I know what you say about how we're supposed to love other people, including people who don't love us back. I know what you say about serving, and I know what you say about giving, and I know what you say about dying to ourselves and living for you. I know all that. But listen, God, you know, it's, it's a weird season in my life. You know, I really, you, you get it, right, that I can't really do all those things. I can't be obedient to that. I, I think I'm doing about 98%, right? I mean, everybody's got a little stash. Everybody's got their own corral. Everybody's got their own little tent full of stuff. Surely you recognize that being obedient right now is just not really convenient for me. I'll get there eventually, but see, there's always a reason and if that's our stand, we need not be surprised if God says, well, if that's where you're going to walk, you realize you're going to be walking alone. I'm done with you. I can't use you. I'll find someone else to pick up the mantle, and that person and I will do the stuff that I had planned for you. And that's what Saul did. And for the next 25 years, God did not speak to him. That's what happened to the first sheriff of Israel and how the good go bad. It's not just a story. It's an account God gave us to learn from. Let's pray.